So last week we saw evil Haman, who's called the enemy of the Jews in chapter 3. He issues a decree to wipe out all of God's people. And the question is, how did we get to this point? Well, in chapter 1 of Esther, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Esther. It's an amazing little book. And it is one of my favorite, favorite Bible stories in the whole Bible. And uh, it 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 is amazing. So in chapter 1, the scene is set. Uh, we're in the Persian Empire. King Xerxes throws a big party to, to show off his wealth, um, gain support for his wars. He calls the queen, demanding that she parade around herself in front of the guests. She says, nah, no. And he doesn't like that. His advisors convince him to fire her immediately, and so he does. Chapter 2 we meet the Jews living in exile in the Babylonian kingdom that, that this is in. They're put there due to God's judgment, living no different than everyone else. God punishes them. He puts them into exile. The king's advisors encourage him to hold a massive beauty pageant to determine the next queen. They gather up all those beautiful virgins of the empire, bring them in. A young Jewish woman named Esther, who had been orphaned and taken in by her cousin Mordecai, is gathered up to be in this contest, and surprisingly, quotes, she wins. She wins. And she follows Mordecai's orders, doesn't tell her, tell uh, Xerxes her lineage, doesn't tell him her nationality. She keeps it a secret. The chapter closes with Mordecai overhearing a plot to kill the king. He shares that with Esther, who in turn shares it with the king, and life is supposed to be good. Chapter 3, instead of promoting Mordecai, the king raises up Haman, who is a wicked man, enemy of the Jews, the people of God. Mordecai refuses to bow down or respect this new leader. He refuses because of his faith. And so, Haman resolves to not only wipe this man out, but his entire people, which were God's people. And he convinces the king to let him go after all the Jews. So an edict is written, a day is appointed, and the Jews are on the schedule to be annihilated. They would be plundered. And this would all happen at the hand of their neighbors. And that leads us to Esther, chapter 4, which is my favorite chapter of the whole darn book. I've been telling this story and not reading it, but today I want to read it because it's great. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as the news, the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, they wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, her about Mordecai, she was deeply 
distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So Hathak went out into Mordecai to the square in front of the palace gate, and Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked that Hathak show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked that Hathak would go and direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy, to plead for all the people. And so Hathak came back with, Esther, with, with Mordecai's message to Esther. And then Esther told Hathak to go back to, to, and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him, to come visit him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, Don't you think for a moment that because you're in the palace, that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from somewhere else. But you and your relatives will all die. And who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews of Susa, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, for night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, even though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. And if I must die, I die. So Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther ordered him to do. Well, he listens to Esther directions now in this verse now he does what she says the relationship from this point on in the story has changed it has ultimately changed esther is transformed here she is emboldened here she now plays the part of the queen. But more importantly, she becomes what God has called her to be, and that is the deliverer of his people. So two questions from Esther chapter 4. Number one, what do you do when you see suffering and sin around you? When Mordecai 
start chapter 4. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, went out to the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace. No one is allowed to enter the palace while wearing clothes in mourning. And every other Jew did the same. You know, last week we saw Haman and his actions is a picture of our enemy, but not our manly, earthly enemy. Our enemy is Satan, and this is the picture of that. We talked about how he persecutes the people of God. We talked about Afghanistan a lot, uh, last week. About how, how Satan spiritually attacks all of us and everyone around us. He brings pain and devastation everywhere to everyone and so some great questions for us this morning are this can you and i see all that is around us and when we see suffering when we see sin when we see pain does it bring us grief does it call us to pray does it call us to action like we see in the story here in the life of esther you know, another bigger, more fundamental question, fundamental question is, do we even care? Do we even notice? I have been trying to combat this in myself, and perhaps like you, like me, have thought to yourselves, when you see pain, when you see suffering, when you see this stuff happen in the world, maybe you, like me, have these thoughts run through your mind. Well... That's what they get for being a Democrat. That's what they get for being a Republican. And, and going along with that line of thinking, what, what did they think was going to happen? Or, 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 well, that's what they get for doing drugs. Or, that's what they get for wasting all their money on cigarettes or meth, or drinking too much. Or that's what they get for not being vaccinated, or that's what they get for letting the government take away their freedom. And so what happens? We do not show one iota of mercy. We do not show one iota of grief. We don't care because that's them, and they're getting what they deserve. And last time I checked, folks, we all deserve death. Every single one of us. But Jesus saved us all. He rescued us all. And if Jesus is able and willing to rescue me, then I should want to be able to help rescue and have compassion and grace and mercy for those around me that need Jesus. It doesn't matter what they do or what they've done. Do we see sin and suffering in us? Do we see the consequences of what our hands have done? Maybe how we are all partially responsible or inintentionally or unintentionally. And when we are faced with our sin, do we really weep over our sin? Do we really care that our sin is something that makes God weep as well? Do we care about that? Or are we so hardened and callous in our sinful lives that we just, eh, whatever. I tried my best, but Satan won. 
Do we see the results of a fallen world and how it's impacted our world, our lives, our bodies? Listen, folks, we're not just sinners, we're sufferers. And when we are faced with suffering, do we really allow ourselves to grieve? So that the Lord can draw us near, so the Lord can heal us. Another question from Esther 4 is, will you hear the voices of others? Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther and gave her Mordecai's message, and then Esther told Hathak to go back and to relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter and the king has not called for me for 30 days. People don't just pop in and say hi to the king. That's not what happens here. Not in this culture. Really not in any culture. I don't think, you know, when England had a king, you know, like people just pop in and go, hey, what's up, king? That's not what happens. You have to be called. That's how it was here. Everyone else, even the queen, had to be called, summoned. And there are only two results if you break this protocol. One, he holds out his scepter and he invites you to come in. Two, off with the head. Right? Execution. Those are the two outcomes. Either he lets you come in or you're dead. And that's what's happening here. Mordecai is asking Esther to put it all on the line. And we learned in chapter 2, back during the contest, that those in the king's harem wouldn't return unless he called one of them to come back by name. And this hasn't happened for Esther for 30 whole days. The king has not wanted to see Esther for 30 days. Esther is in a tough spot. She doesn't have the power like we usually think of queens having power. She's not nobility. She's not from a royal family. In an earthly sense, she's an orphan girl that has won a Miss Persia pageant. And unlike Disney princess stories, she really hasn't lived happily ever after. She sends back word that she's not so sure, and Haman advises her a little stronger, a little more bluntly. He nudges her and says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will come from somewhere else. But you and your relatives will die, and who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. Mordecai responds. He gives her a final push. Listen, if you sit there, why do you assume that you're going to survive? Maybe God put you here just for this reason. That's what Mordecai is doing here. He's going to this woman, speaking truth and love. Wake up, turn from sin, trust the Lord, do the right thing. And Esther, at this point, has a choice to make. She can follow her heart, 
or she can follow godly advice. Our default mode as humans, especially in today's culture, is to follow our heart. But let me tell you something. That is the worst advice that I've ever heard of. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Don't follow your heart. Don't do it. Jeremiah 17.9, what does it say? The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But yet we live in a culture, a society, a day and age where it's all about following your heart. Follow your heart. Follow what makes you feel happy. Follow what brings you joy. Follow what brings you peace. Follow your lustful, whatever. Just follow your heart. And the scripture says that is dumb. Don't do that. Because your heart is a liar. Our hearts are prone to wander from the Lord. Our enemy feeds us dangerous lies. He preys on our twisted desires. And God protects us by living in community with each other. All of us. All of you. We all live together in community. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us wise friends like Mordecai. Or like Adam Lanter. Or like Tim Kerr. Or like John Eilers or Steve Peterson or Donna Simmons. The question is, will we hear the voices that God is using to speak into our lives? Will we? Esther does. The challenges to us from Esther 4 are, number one, is own who you are. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews of Susa. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. If I must die, I must die. A switch is flipped in Esther. She comes into her own. She starts to own who she is, and she agrees to go. You know, this week... I know, I'm a fanboy, I can't help it, but there was a movie released like 22 years ago that was like one of the, I don't know, one of those movies for me that I just was in love with. And There's another one, there's a number four coming out. They just dropped a trailer this week. There's a new Matrix movie coming out, right? Now, I love the first one. The second one and third one were dumb, so, you know, whatever. But the first one was amazing, you know, so I'm hoping like they'll go back to, to that. But I love that movie. And I love the fact that, that maybe they're going to do some, some good with a new one. But I want you to know that the one, the one of my absolute favorite scenes, well, it is my favorite scene in the entire first movie, is, 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 is where Neo, Keanu Reeves, He's not buying that he's this Neo character. He's not buying that he's this Savior character. He's not buying that he is the one that has been prophesied about. He just doesn't buy it. And there comes this point in the movie 
where Neo is in the Matrix, and there's people, two people looking at him. There's Morpheus, and um, there's Trinity, and one says to the other, what is happening right now? And Lawrence Fishburne, in his deep baritone tones, right, he says, he is starting to believe. Esther, in verse 15, and right here in that, that, those verses I just read, Esther is beginning to believe. She is. And it changes everything. It changes everything. So she tells Mordecai, get all the Jews together. I want to fast and I want to pray. All of a sudden, she like turns into this godly, awesome woman, servant of God. And that's what you'd expect from a Bible story, right? And fasting and prayer. But this is really the first mention of any such religious activity in this entire book. It seems as if the Jews have fallen so much for Persia that they've lost their first love, the God of Jacob. And this fiery trial brings them back, and we can see Esther is going to be the one that God uses to save his children. She is starting to believe. Church, can I say that God can use anyone? A follower or a non-follower of Jesus? A donkey, right? There's a talking donkey in the Bible that God uses. I had a friend that came to Jesus because of a Beatles song, of all things. Listen, things go so much better if you will just own who you are, if you will own up to your identity in Christ, and that you realize you are a disciple of Jesus, that you are the house of the Holy Spirit. This isn't God's house. You are God's house. And that your allegiance is not to the flag or the anthem or even this country. You are a citizen of the greatest nation ever conceived, and that is the kingdom of God. You are a citizen of God's kingdom. Can we own that? Can we own who we are? Not not Christian down here and all these other things, but can we put the fact that we're a Christian up here and everything else down here? If we can finally get that straight, then watch out. Then we know that nothing can stop us. Last week we talked about Romans 8 and how nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, of God through Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, not demons, nothing. Church, I hope that all of us sitting here this morning, that we get it and we truly get that. And that by now we own that. And when we own it, we truly, truly know who we are in Jesus. That we can stand up to anything because Jesus is holding us up. Number two, use your position to serve. Verse 16, and then, though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. You know, many, many years after this story, way down Esther's family tree, there was another. And he showed people what it looks like. John 13, 12 through 15, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. Because that's what I am. 
And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you this example to follow and do as I have done to you. Our Lord and Savior washed feet, the feet of his disciples that wore sandals and walked miles and miles and miles on dirty, broken roads. Those those calloused, dirt-caked, smelly, sweaty, cracked-beyond-dimension feet that were disgusting. And the God of the universe kneeled down with a tub of water and cleaned them. He was God. You want to talk about humility? Jesus was willing to do that for them, and then he said, this is what being a leader is. This is what being a great person is. This is how you win the world, not by power, wealth, status, anything else, by washing feet. We must use our, our positions in this life to serve each other. Whether that be CEO, farmer, salesman, preacher, homekeeper, retired person, whatever that looks like, we must use those positions in this life to serve each other. If we want to be great in the eyes of the one whose opinion, that, the only one whose opinion matters, watch each other's feet. Think of each other better than ourselves and show love and kindness and mercy and grace to everyone we come in contact with. How are we doing with that, church? How are we doing? I'll tell you this. After the last couple years, my fuse is pretty short. I need to be reminded of this all the time. Number three, last one. Place your trust in him. If I die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Man, Esther all of a sudden has taken on this rock star status. Like Neo in the Matrix or any other story where there's a hero in waiting and it has to come out and and realize that that person is the hero. Esther, from here on out, takes center stage. There's nobody but Esther. She is coming into whom God has called her to be. And as we will see, she is masterful in the rest of the story and how she allows for God to use her gifts, abilities, and position to save his people, to save her people. She's beginning to believe. We have come to the part of the story where Esther has begun to believe. It happens to be what it takes for God to use you. Church, do you believe yet? I know for some of you the question is silly. You have believed for a long, long time. I know that. For some of us, though, I ask again, are you, are you beginning to believe? That God wants to use you? That God wants to use you to serve? That God wants to use your position, the one that he has put you in? your job, your status, your life on the that he wants you to put all on the line. That he wants you to begin to believe more in him than you or others or technology. That, that he wants you to begin to trust him with your family, with your finances, with your everything. Do you believe? 
Placing your trust in Him is not saying a prayer, is not just getting baptized, is not just coming to church, is not just helping out the needy. That's part of it, I know. But listen to Jesus in Luke 9.23. Then He said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has all given all of us a reason to be here and a purpose in this world. And that he has loved us first. 